You have uh, an interesting past that we won't go into too much detail, but actually we're interested in knowing um, a certain event that happened to you at the beginning of this year that kind of brought you out of that, that past and what it was and, and why it happened. Sure. Uh, so, yes, I started my career as a CIA analyst, um, worked throughout government in various different roles, but mostly a lot, a large chunk of my government role was in intelligence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something I never really talked about publicly, not necessarily because I couldn't, I wasn't a covert operative or anything like that, but mostly because I didn't want to. I mean, there were times where obviously I couldn't talk about certain things anyway, but it was a personal choice. Um, I kept my work life and personal life separate and didn't feel the need to advertise where I was working. And there were times where I wasn't allowed to. Um, I did... As many people might have seen, after our presidential election, um, our current president's first act on day one was to give a speech at the headquarters of the CIA. Um, And that moment particularly, it, it, that particular moment offended me so strongly, having a president stand in front of that wall of what's called the wall of honor, the stars Mm -hmm. that represent fallen CIA officers, um, and make kinds of statements he did that it compelled me to actually speak out Mm -hmm. and so I wrote an article in the New York Times about that particular event and why whether you're a Democrat or Republican or conservative or liberal why that matters that it shouldn't have been a political event at all and on that day I pretty much told the world in in the New York Times about my CIA past but I felt it was important enough to recognize that I have a platform that gives me a place of credibility when I speak about these issues and I didn't want to do so anonymously because as much as I understand people who are still in government who speak anonymously, I recognize the power of being able to look at someone and say, this person is speaking from that place Mm. and that matters and that changes the dialogue. So it was important enough to me to, to do that. So I mean, I don't necessarily take your LinkedIn profile as gospel, but um, <laughs> that, as far as I can tell from that, uh, you actually stopped in sort of around 2013 and they had some other work for a few years in between, or yes. was it contracting work? No, or- <laughs> no. When I left, I completely, I would say completely reinvented myself. Mm-hmm. Um you know, yeah. again, I had an amazing government career. One that the highlights was really towards the end, where I got to serve Vice President Biden at the White House, and from there, there was really nowhere to go mm-hmm. but down. After working for a man like that, so I decided it was time to leave government and really see what the private sector brings to mm-hmm. bear on some of these same yeah. challenges. So I actually went in house, total one eighty, went in house at Exxon Mobil. Yeah. and worked on corporate social responsibility yeah. issues for yeah. two years yeah. at their headquarters. Was that during? I oh, know that was it was BP, wasn't it? That had yeah, the major kind that of was not. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and, and what, what's that like? I mean, uh, I would say oil companies probably have, depending on, on, on who's in power and in each end, so possibly even as bad reputation as government sometimes. Yeah. And what was that like? Especially, I mean, you're working in kind of the the best possible role, maybe at an oil company. <laughs> well, so it was important to me. If somebody had asked me when you when I was thinking of leaving government, if there was anything you could do, what would it be? Mm. And I had made this comment, not actually thinking it would ever happen. I said I would love to go into one of these big bad corporations with a huge presence, mm. particularly in Africa, because I spent most of my career working in Africa. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, and I'd really love to help them think through a little better how they work with their local communities. Mm. You know, you can call it corporate social responsibility. You can call it corporate citizenship. You can call it a million things. But that was what I wanted to do. And I guess, you know, I said it. I put it out there in the world. A year later, someone sent me mm. an email saying, well, ExxonMobil happens to be looking for someone to come in and help them look at the impact of their programs around the mm. world, help quantify the impact and all of that. And uh, I, I paused. I, I definitely paused. It's yeah, ExxonMobil. Yeah. There's yeah. everything that comes with that. But I strongly, strongly believe that instead of standing on the outside and complaining yeah. about something that you don't yeah. actually know firsthand, I believe in going inside and seeing, seeing what the realities are and what positive role I can play in it. So It's actually, I mean, at a very small scale, my wife <clears> and I used to run an environment charity in Australia and um, we actually found some of our best programs and partnerships were generally with um, corporates. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's, I, it's a bit of an unsung secret actually that most charities especially I'm not sure if it's the same the world over but there anyway you actually end up making a lot of your income from corporate responsibility programs and things because they're the best places really to kind of maybe you have less of a maybe you have less of an impact as an organization, but you actually possibly accomplish more in the long run. I'm not sure. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I went in there. Um, it was a, a very new field for me. And the first thing that you do is sort of benchmark across industries. Mm. And I have to say, I'm no apologist for the oil and gas industry. I'm no apologist for mistakes of the past. But I was very impressed with how thoughtful ExxonMobil was mm. about their corporate I mean, if you want to call it philanthropy, they re- it's much more of a partnership the way they work yeah, on their yeah, programs. But yeah. I was really impressed with how thoughtful it was. And they, again, this is definitely not an advertisement for the company, but they... they I don't know if they really need any of it. Yeah, <laughs> but they do have some really impressive, thoughtful work around the world yeah. that kept me there for two years. It was interesting enough to me and meaningful mm. enough that I stayed on. And then since I've seen, um, you've sort of been doing like risk advisory... Yeah. So what, what does that mean exactly? Sure. So I moved to New York uh, about two years ago mm-hmm. now. Um, first and foremost, uh, I'm a New Yorker by attitude. Okay. So I just wanted to be back in New York, first and foremost. I but you possibly feel at home <laughs> in, a, in a city that could be more rude than New York. More rude and more <laughs> lovely at the same time. Oh, but yeah. um, <laughs> so I went into a firm that does, I mean, they do a variety of things, but it's really. I was heading the political risk uh, practice for this firm, and that can be a whole variety of things from helping companies figure out how to acquire licenses overseas without engaging in corrupt practices, Mm -hmm. who they need to work with to make sure they're doing things in an above-board way, or a startup or a company or a firm that wants to work in an emerging market and doesn't quite know who to work with, how to do it, how to do it well. So, I mean, in a way, let's be honest, it's a bit of corporate intelligence in a way. Yeah. but I, what really drew me to that firm was really the anti-corruption angle of it because okay. I thought, to me, that was something that was positive and a good way to help companies do well overseas without engaging in bad okay. practices. So before we started, before I switched on the mic, you said to me that um, you're not really a tech person and yet we're at a conference <laughs> called Tech Open Air, which right. if, if anyone doesn't know, I mean, I'm looking out the window and I can see um, tents and music stages and so it's not the most traditional 
uh, tech conference anyway. It's a festival. (laughs) (laughs) But so what are you here to speak about? So, you know, when I first got the invitation, I remember smiling, thinking I'm not quite sure where I fit Mm -hmm. into this program. Um, But as I've been thinking about it more, there are a few key messages. I think, you know, I'm doing a fireside chat tomorrow, and I know a lot of it will just be a little bit more of the personal, Mm -hmm. why, who are you, why did you do this? But um, I have two really key messages I hope to come get across. And one of them is, you know, in any of these major global challenges, any of them, you know, for me, I worked a lot on counter-extremism and counter-terrorism for okay. most of my career. But whether it be counter-extremism, whether it be climate change, whether it be the refugee crisis, any of these things, right, governments can't do it alone and shouldn't do it alone. Mm-hmm. And I think the tech industry in particular has the capability of really playing positive role in tackling some of these challenges and contributing in a certain way. And I just, I I hope to get across this message of what the tech industry's roles can be and how you can continue to advance your product while also having a positive impact. I mean, I have examples and for me, for example, one of the biggest issues, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point is we all know about the filter bubbles and yeah. all these yeah. all these things, yeah. but I think the tech industry has this really interesting role that they could be playing, and, and, and are, many are, in how to really help advance solutions to some of these okay. problems. The, the tech bubble is something, tech bubble, filter bubble is, well, <laughs> possibly <laughs> the same. Um, so it was, it was interesting because, um, I mean, if we go back before the... And I'm not going to go into any detail on these. It's just as a as a point. Sure. Before the Snowden revelations, people thought um, that people who talked about uh, being spied on were just tinfoil hat wearing. And then the Snowden revelations happened, and everyone suddenly was, oh, some of these people were right. And there was a similar thing I felt with the filter bubble that lots of people talked about it, but then it actually took some very public uh, events of the past six months for people to go, oh. Oh, actually, there's repercussions. (laughs) So so I think it's interesting because in some ways technology has been a great savior for people who always felt different, uh, especially in smaller communities where you would often possibly be the only person who had a particular interest or a particular lifestyle or whatever it may be. Um, And then in the past decades, you've been able to connect with other like-minded people around you. And then, but then something happened in the past few years where it kind of got too extreme. Yeah. And the tech industry has become obsessive with crafting algorithms that serve you exactly what you want, which works fantastically in some places, but has caused a bit of a large negative knock-on effect. Um, And I suppose, do you have any thoughts or advice for some of these companies on how they can continue to kind of deliver these tailored products, but not blinker people to other alternatives and i mean it's a it's a big it's a broad spectrum from recommending brands of toilet paper on amazon it's not necessarily connected to facebook only kind of presenting you news from people who have the same opinion as you but they're sort of part of the same issue right do you have any any recommendations for the companies how they can somehow get a balance between the two? So, oh, there's so many thoughts I'm going to unpack in this. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I, unfortunately, I don't have the tech background to know no. exactly what they can do, but I do know that, you know, I had, 
about a year ago. Actually, before I really admit to my CIA pass, the first time I wrote was really a year ago. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you can read between the lines. I do mention that I had an intel background in that piece. Yeah, yeah. But I talk about how I thought that the biggest threat, at least in the U.S., what I felt was the biggest threat was less was no longer the threat of foreign terrorists, but it was the threat of Americans who are so polarized that they absolutely refuse to talk to people who are on the opposite side of any issue, Mm -hmm. right? So I look at this and there's this never-ending debate. Is it Facebook's responsibility to make sure that they're showing you content from all over? Is it... It's not their responsibility, but when they are purposely creating algorithms that are making sure that you don't see the other side, that to me is extremely problematic. Mm. I mean, I would challenge folks to really ask themselves, am I willing to work with people who are not like-minded? Am I willing to engage with people who are not like-minded? Because more and more, the answer seems, or I don't know about today, but six months ago, Mm. the answer was pretty clear that it was no. People were self-segregating into communities of like-minded people, right? Whether that be in physical spaces, choosing their neighborhoods, their schools, their social environments, but definitely online. And here we've got this, the internet, which should be a tool to unite people, to connect people, right. to it expose felt like it was people. To a certain point. And then, and then it became, yeah, yeah <laughs> something switched. And, and that's, but that's a human tendency as well, mm. right? It's a human tribal tendency yep. to go towards people <laughs> yeah. who are like you. Yeah. And what I want to really challenge people to think about is if you want to play a role in solving any, whether it's a local problem or a global problem, you have to be willing to talk to people who have different opinions than you. Mm. Every major success in my career, and obviously, unfortunately, I can't talk about extreme details, but I can say including one that led to rescuing a life, a human being, it was because over a few years I had been willing to sit down with people who were on mm. complete opposite mm. for me, suspected terrorists, yeah. extremists, and then often radical shame. And then, yes, you yeah. build a trust. Yeah. And even if you don't agree, you build enough trust that when I needed that person or those people mm. a year or two later to help me mm. possibly save a life, yeah. they trusted me enough to talk to me again. And it's just... This is my biggest concern with this proliferation of, I mean, I'm probably not going to say this in the correct technical terms because I'm not that person, but just this proliferation of technologies and algorithms and data that are bringing people together with only other like-minded people. And, yep. and you know, I'm yeah. a lefty, I'm a liberal, but yeah. does that mean that I don't sit down and recognize that me and the person on the right side of that issue, right, as in directional right don't both have at the end of the day a common interest to solve the issue even if we don't agree on politics or religion or ideology or whatever Mm -hmm. and the only way we're going to solve that problem is if we both figure it out and and i i love being at festivals like this i do find that obviously at a festival like this you often find people who very much only talk to their yeah. cohorts yeah. into people who think yeah. like they do. Yeah. And I really want to challenge them to get outside that box and recognize that they will only really advance the needle on mm. any issues mm. if they're willing to widen that. And that and that's where things like the filter bubble, it happened great. Facebook, mea culpa, we recognize we actually created algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do now? And, and, and the feeling is I get from a lot of... Uh, uh, I mean, I, I've been to a lot of startup events, and I'm going to say startup event more than tech event. Okay. <laughs> because I think uh, tech events tend to be much more just people focusing on 
how they accomplish certain things, whatever that may be, whereas the startup events are more about the ideas and the products and things like that. Um, it seemed to be like, oh, yeah, we've got this problem. We're going to solve it with more algorithms. And it seems to me somewhat like, hang on a minute. <laughs> it doesn't seem right. <laughs> so, you know, fight fire with fire and all that. But um, I think it's an algorithm that sort of got us here in the first place. And this, especially when I see with things like artificial intelligence and uh, automation and robots, it's like people stand up on a stage and they say, well, you know, we're inventing this technology that's going to get rid of a lot of jobs. And, at some, and you sit there thinking... But you're okay with that? I mean, exactly. uh, <laughs> or, or it's almost like, yeah, we know this is going to cause lots of problems in 20 years, but we're going to do it anyway. And you're like, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's like, have you thought about this? <laughs> so that brings up something. Just constantly innovating yeah. for the hell of it. And I was speaking but, to a few people last night about this. Of course, I, I, I may be considered the cynic or the annoying person here because I'm always going to ask those questions but somebody was was talking to me about this very cool technology that she was bringing Mm. making more accessible to more communities and I and I challenged her on that you know this is incredible I completely understand the amazing advancements that this technology is going to bring and I know this is not your responsibility but Mm. you do realize in the near term this is going to end up destroying so many jobs and I get it you can give me the example of well during the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution yeah Yeah, but those things happen at a much slower pace Mm. and people yes we will survive at the end of the day this is going to happen at such a fast pace we Mm. will have people in their 40s and 50s who you can say all you want but now this will free them to go find their true creative passion no this will make them jobless and society but won't move as quickly right and and i get it it's not your responsibility to it in in politics has failed us because politicians will never campaign on a platform of i'm not going to bring back any of your jobs but i'm campaigning on a platform of saying i'm going to help figure out how to retrain you for the future yeah no one will vote for that person so while it's not a tech startup's role to think about well what do i do to make sure people aren't leaving losing their jobs i would offer okay but have you thought about this is where i actually this is another thought of mine of trying to redefine the term of corporate social responsibility Mm. right if you're a tech firm and you're bringing about this amazing technology that is going to advance whatever it is let's look at i mean anything automation is such an easy one let's look at automatic driving you know, vehicles and the truck. I didn't know this. The truck driving industry in the U.S. apparently is the biggest employer. Yeah. And if you, if every truck driver loses their job, that might not be you who's creating self-driving cars responsibility, but why not make that your corporate social responsibility platform? Why not say, and at the same time, we are going to redirect even just 1% of our efforts Mm. to job training throughout the country for truck drivers for a new sort of industry. Call that Call that your social good. Yeah. Everyone wants to know they're doing a social good. Great. You're creating this game-changing technology. Also think about the social impact and make that your publicly braggable corporate social responsibility strategy. Yeah. But then that also brings me back to now I'm really getting on my soapbox. It's all right. <laughs> this idea of one of the things, I'm not going to name names, but I got a little bit, I mean, frightened's an overstatement, but yesterday somebody was speaking. Hmm. And this person was talking about all these amazing things that young tech innovators can create and was giving an example of someone who was in their young 20s who created this (laughs) game-changing technology. And he said, 
So clearly experience doesn't matter. And, yeah. And, and I thought, okay, experience doesn't matter to create that technology. Yeah. But experience matters if you want to bring in someone who has worked on these issues in the real world yeah. and sit down and talk to them about, but what is the real human impact here? And how can you help me think through all of the risks that will come out of this yeah. and what we can do? And that yeah, human life ex- touch, life, life experience, experience not matters. Work, work experience, but life experience. And I think, um, I mean, the almost the the, uh, the slogan of, uh, of our podcast is, and that's a whole other topic. Myself and my co-host are 36 plus. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because in an industry that generally focuses on the, the, the young, but um, it's, I think one of the advantages of the, the tech in, in commerce industry is that it can be moderately anonymous as well. So sometimes um, it only comes only in the sort of final stages when you meet someone face to face that they actually realize how old you might be. Um, but I think it's going to be, I don't think we're going to get into territory of Logan's run or anything like that quite yet. But, you know, it could sometimes be, I go to lots of, I met some people yesterday who were working in the um, innovation department of a major German corporate here. And they look like they're about 15. And I just, and I'm sort of, and you can't but help sometimes feel like, oh my God, I look, re- I must look really ancient here. Um, and you're really not. Um but I think there's there's actually an, there's a sort of an increased recognition that people who have been around longer bring different sorts of experience. Diversity is not just gender and race; it's all sorts of things, right. um, and it's something that uh, is partially being recognised. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that I'm trying not to use really obvious examples, but I'm sure at some point I will. Um, as we know. Any little thing can also destroy a company right now mm. in the age of social media, mm. in the age of people jumping, you know, that tribal mentality, jumping all in to attack someone if they do something you don't mm. agree with. I mean, the per- perfect example in the U.S. when Uber surged their vehicles to yep. JFK Airport yep. after the, yep. quote, yep. Muslim yep. ban. I don't think, personally, I don't think that Uber thought, ooh, no. we hate Muslims, let's exploit the situation. Yeah. But because yeah. people already didn't then- trust this company because of previous experience corporate sort of <laughs> culture issues yeah. they are i mean that and in the end we'll see if that will really affect uber or not but the reason i bring that example up is yeah. if you would sat down and it's interesting because they have very serious and serious people on their board yeah. but if you would sit down and listen to the advice of people who have worked really hard in these worlds you might have been able to avoid some of that by actually understanding that making sure the public knows yeah. where your corporate values yeah. lie is yeah. important. Yeah. And yeah, hey, I'm maybe I shouldn't say my age on this podcast. I'm 22. No, I mean I'm in my 40s, so I'm 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 already retired, according to the guy who gave the speech yesterday. But we continue to to say I will continue to say. Only when you engage. I mean, now I sound like I'm pitching myself, which is not what I mean. But only when you engage people who have actually been on the ground, worked on these issues to remind you that there's a human aspect to every single thing Mm. you're doing and to help you think through that side of it, will you be able to be completely successful, assuming that part of your success, you want to know that you're also contributing in a positive way instead of a negative way to humanity. If If that's not one of your issues, then, you know, 
I guess you don't need to talk to people with experience, but at the end of the day, <laughs> your business will not succeed yeah. if you... I think if I had a camera then it would have picked up the uh, very nice eye roll in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> don't tell them I rolled my eyes. <laughs> well, um, I think I think we only get half an hour uh, just because other people want to use the room, which is fair enough. We should also be fair, but I think that's a very nice place to end anyway. I mean, maybe just on the much more practical, just wrap up. Um, what are you doing at the moment? What's what's next? What's, sure. what's your plans? So I have three major... I've never been that person who has a five-year plan. No, no, no. And yet I've had a pretty <laughs> successful career. But like I do have, have three plan. major goals right now. Yeah. One, I mean, I'm going to start teaching at NYU in the fall, okay. graduate-level courses on national security stuff. I'm very excited about that. I want to continue to inspire, especially younger women, to get into the foreign policy and national security okay. world because yeah. we need it. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Secondly, uh, one of my number one passions right now is about playing my role in, in helping, I mean, this is very U.S. focused, but helping get back to a place where civil discourse is accepted yeah. and can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's just a personal really big goal for me. And then third, working with companies as an advisor, you know, I'm on retainer with a few, helping companies, startups, whoever, nonprofits as well, think through... Any of, I mean, mostly a lot of the ones I work with work in emerging markets, mm -hmm. um, but anywhere and just really thinking through their whole range of risks, both socially and actual risks, whether they be anti-corruption risks, political risks, helping make sure that companies really, a lot of them, the things they're not thinking about, keep them out of trouble as opposed to come ask me after you've yep, gotten yeah, into yeah. trouble. <laughs> so those are, those are the three things. One is the obvious consulting side of it. Yeah. The other two are my passions. I'm excited to teach and I am completely focused on trying to help foster more civil discourse right now.